Hi, everybody. My name is Aaron Solomon, and welcome to the first episode of the nextlevel.com legal podcast. We actually set out with a pretty lofty goal to make a podcast that lawyers are actually going to enjoy listening to. So Next Level itself is a full service legal marketing agency, but we aren't doing this podcast to sell you anything. We want to share some ideas and great conversation, and we really hope you like it. So today's guest comes to us from San Francisco. As the kids say, I know him IRL. Jerry Mikowski is a world-renowned thinker, referred to as one of the shapers of the dot-com era. He's an expert on the notion of trust. Welcome, Jerry. Thank you, Aaron. I'm, uh, as they say, a legend in my own mind. <laughs> Which we will get to. We're definitely going to get to your mind. Jerry, I've got my... Uh, my Japanese Hario pour over coffee here, and I have an amazing guest. Are you a coffee person? Um, I am indeed. Uh, make a cup, of, make a batch of coffee every morning. What's your favorite coffee spot in San Francisco? Um, actually, I have uh, a bad news for you. We've moved to Portland. Oh, that's not bad news. That's not bad news at all. Portland's wonderful with also great coffee. Um, can, yeah, uh, Portland is actually reminisce about all the stuff we miss. Better coffee, San don't know. Exactly. Exactly. So, Jerry, why don't we start off? So you coined the term relationship economy a long time ago. And one of the things that I tell lawyers about a lot is that the concepts that you discuss are going to be more important to them, more important for them than ever, especially since COVID-19. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about the idea of the relationship economy and about your work with Rex, and we'll go from there. That sounds great. Thanks, Aaron. So this whole thing starts for me back in the mid 90s, when I'm a technology industry trends analyst, not a Wall Street analyst, but rather just looking for trends. And, and I had a celebrity boss for my latter part of in that in that era. Uh, her name is Esther Dyson. And I remember a couple meetings when the internet starts showing up. And I realized that everybody's using the word consumer here and there. And it dawns on me that the word consumer really irritates me. And I start sort of probing into that. And what that led me to was realizing that we were in the middle of consumer mass market capitalism, which is one of many variants of capitalism, but not a particularly healthy one. And that that one was predicated on breaking our trust in many ways that we had normalized. We were just taking for granted. So what we now see as the surveillance state or the stalker economy, if you've heard those terms, was back then just kind of a wee glimmer somewhere in, in the side. And I wish I'd you know stepped on that pedal harder back in the day. But, but I realized that um, we were busy breaching trust in ways and then asking for people to trust us. So what advertising often does is they scoop around in the dumpster to pick up all your data. They then use that data to manipulate messages so that they'll convince you to buy their stuff better without actually telling you about the mechanisms or how much of your data they actually got or any of that kind of stuff. It's all it's like a bank of fog back there. Uh, and advertising is only one of the different ways that we're busy breaching trust because as I followed this, the word consumer down, I realized that at the same time as we were busy breaking trust and designing our institutions from the, the assumption of mistrust of the average person, we were also reinventing trust and picking up broken bits of trust and reestablishing it. And that light bulb went on for me when I realized uh, the experience that people might go through when they use the Wikipedia. 
right? And I don't know right. what I ask people is, do you remember the first time you tried the Wikipedia? And uh, almost everybody's like, yeah, yeah, sure. Uh, and then and then I th and then I ask, do you remember when you realized how the Wikipedia works that any idiot on the planet can go make a change to it? And how did that feel? And people respond with, oh, well, that was like a gut tightening kind of thing. It, it felt dangerous. It felt uh, really strange. And so partly by, by realizing that there were dozens, if not hundreds of movements that were picking up and reestablishing relationships of trust, I coined this term, the relationship economy. And my thesis then, this is back a little before 2010, was that we're, we're not entering the attention economy or the experience economy. We're hopefully entering the relationship economy. And if we do this right and work together, uh, we can actually redesign our institutions based on trust of the average person. And as you can tell in the following decade, I was pretty wrong for a decade because what happened in the next decade was the distinct undermining of trust, the intentional undermining of trust as a political tactic and other kind of, kind of strategy. So sorry for the long explanation, but there's a whole bunch of different uh, forces that are feeding into this idea that we're entering a relationship economy and how that has to do with trust. So first of all, it's not too long. It was a fantastic explanation. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned Wikipedia. So when you tell somebody about how Wikipedia works, do you think that we see the people on Wikipedia as others or do we see them like ourselves? I think people think that there's a, a couple sort of obsessive hobbyist types who are on Wikipedia making changes and adding new pages and that they're kind of like me, but maybe kind of not because who would go put in the effort to go do this on this public site. And then they go back to their obsessive hobby of baseball statistics or whatever else. And at which point they might go, oh wait, it's, it's just like this, right? Except it's a public good. It's this commons artifact that they're helping create. So that's kind of cool. And then maybe they have the thought, well, how could I get involved in something like that? So I, I, I think that, that um, people have all, you know, strange ideas about who's build, busy building this Wikipedia thing, but that they um, start to realize that it's people like them. So nothing has brought your work in my mind more into focus than the events of the past couple of years, even before the virus. So information comes out from the 2016 election on about the role of technology companies and how information is being made more elastic, to say it charitably, mm -hmm. than perhaps it should have been. So you at that point must have realized that if you were ahead of your time at one point, you weren't ahead of your time anymore. <laughs> yes, uh, the proverbial shit was hitting fan at that time because <laughs> um, we've seen now what happens when people systematically undertake to kind of uh, destroy our faith in information. And that's, that's really weird and, and, and pretty dangerous if you follow that down. And if I were on the one hand, you know, things like Wikipedia probably make lawyers really nervous because how do I know who made that change? How do I fact check it? What's going on here? Uh, but then the Wikipedia is kind of a public conversation about what's a fact, what's information and what matters. And what we're seeing now, you know, now the Wikipedia seems like old media almost because it's so long established that we take it for granted is we're seeing that that truth and facts and all that are now very hard to pin down and squishy and foggy. Um, one of the things that led me here was a documentary written, done by Adam Curtis, who is a BBC documentarian. 
his specialty is crawling through through BBC archives around the world and pulling up all kinds of really, really interesting footage and then weaving that into narratives of his own making that are kind of political and kind of radical. But, but he convinced me years ago with a documentary called Hypernormalization that we are already in a nonlinear war. And nonlinear warfare is kind of information and psychological warfare, which is much cheaper and more durable than bombs, bullets, and invasions. And if you think about it, and you think about what's been happening worldwide with the global shift to the far right and a, and a bunch of other things, and the similarities and tactics and strategies used across these movements, and how social media and old media play into it, uh, old media because their eyeball model of revenue generation can't shut its eyeball. Right, it's it, like old media is riveted on all these events and is basic, basically complicit because uh, attention is oxygen. So you're looking at all of this, thinking, how do I pin anything down? What do we rely on? What is truth anymore? Uh, so we are awash in misinformation, very intentionally from a lot of players. So then, would you agree that professions such as the law? where trust is absolutely central to what lawyers say they do and do every day is something that needs to be reinvented now more than ever. Because, you know, it's one thing if we don't trust our phones, right? right. If we just assume that everything coming up on our phones, you know, you look at something on Google and then, you know, for the next two days, it's popping up on your phone, right? That's one thing. Right. But if we look at institutions and professionals who run them, such as lawyers, you know, how can lawyers in the public eye reinvent trust in themselves and their profession? Do you have tips for them? What would you do if you were them? It's funny because this works at many different scales, right? At the, at the personal scale of you have a client and can we build trust? That, that's one level of trust. And I think, you know, that's humans doing that goes back as far as human relationships and, and sort of humans as, uh, as tribes goes back. Sure. Uh, but then at the larger scale of do we trust the legal system or the law as a whole, that's that's one one layer that's actually being actively undermined right now. So um, uh, when when President Trump goes and decides that that, you know, legal matters are up to his deciding and that he has ultimate power, that has a lot to do with the law and the underpinnings of it and the rule of law. Uh, and then as you go around the world, there's a term illiberal democracy where um, countries around the world make it look like they're democracies, but in fact, they have undermined the court system and the electoral system and the press such that uh, they're basically autocrats in control. And you know, from, from outside, you could pretend like it's the democracy because look, everybody, you know, 97% of our population voted, but in fact, had they voted against the autocrat, they would have been perhaps jailed or persecuted. So there's many opportunities in this spectrum up and down to reinvent or rethink the law. And pieces of that have to do with the difference between retributive and restorative justice, for example. So we have a very retributive system where it's kind of eye for an eye uh, in restorative justice. What you try to do is mainstream the, the perpetrator back into society if you possibly can and make the victim whole if it's at all possible, but sort of build... You're, you're basically doing what we used to do long ago with bad actors in a tribe, which is, and, and which we still do in some tribal societies, which is you put the bad actor in a circle that involves their family, their friends, their whoever has faith in them, and you figure out what happened and you try to bring it, you know, normalize and mainstream the person again. Um, 
and then what we're living in today is is social media that has this vigilante mentality where nobody is safe telling the truth right uh you, you, you confess that you did something wrong and you will very likely be crucified virtually and the the, the the earth that you stand on will be salted so that nothing else will ever live there um, and that's not healthy that's that's a really dangerous dangerous kind of situation to be in when you're trying to reestablish trust because it's like hey if i'm honest if i'm vulnerable which is a really great path to trust and here i recommend watching or reading anything by brene brown who is a terrific terrific guide into the topics of trust and courage and vulnerability and joy all of which believe it or not are very related to our conversation here um, you know, if, if, if those paths to authentic connection, joy and trust are broken, then we have to take very special measures to either create spaces within which those things work, uh, whitelist relationships, uh, where, you know, these people we know we can trust, and then their connections, we think we can trust and their connections are, you know, somehow uh, foggy and in the cloud. So, um, I recommend something I call design from trust. Uh, it's not designed for trust. You're not sort of intentionally designing things to be more trustable or trustworthy. You're actually designing from, an, from the idea that most people have good intent. Not all people, but most people. And that uh, most people are trying to help, trying to do the right thing, and occasionally they make mistakes. And starting with that assumption actually leads to some really great places. Uh, and causes you then to design very different systems. And uh, I was a juror on one case in San Francisco long, long ago, um, and realized sort of halfway through deliberations that the attorney uh, defending the driver in this accident case was clearly lying. And there was they had an expert witness and all that. And it dawned on me just exactly how the legal system forced them into opposite corners and forced them both to ignore stuff and lie about stuff and that it was unnecessary that this situation shouldn't even have come to court right and i think anybody listening to this podcast will probably think of, of various situations in their own life where they were incredulous in the middle of a case that the case was even there or that uh, people were forced to say and do the things they had to do because of the structures of the system. So I think uh, reinventing or rethinking the law can take us to very simple personal things at the lowest personal level or to uh, really deep system-wide rethinking of what are our assumptions behind the, the, the legal system we have that we think perhaps is the best one there ever could be, otherwise we would have replaced it, right? Well, I, I don't actually necessarily think so. I think that that many of our assumptions um, have led to a legal system that isn't that uh, that helpful, and that all too often is easily captured uh, by interests that have the funds or the or the political pressure to do so. But the legal system itself, Jerry, is highly transactional. So one of the things you mentioned earlier in our discussion is the notion of consumerism, and the legal profession, the legal industry is very, very transactional. How can we infuse trust or allow trust to take a much higher place in the industry and in consumers relationship 
with lawyers, given the fact that it's fundamentally transactional, because if you've ever needed a lawyer in your life, and I'm a lawyer by training, but I've also needed lawyers in my life. Generally, when you need to go out and get a lawyer, it is a transaction that you're about to do. And generally, you're at a point in your life where there's a lot of stress, you know, you're, you're seeing a lawyer because it's some kind of emergent situation, rather than like visiting a lawyer for a legal checkup. So given the fact that does have a transactional nature, and it is consumerist, how do we make it more trust based? What you just said is especially and painfully true in the legal profession. So back, I think around 2007, Scott Turow uh, wrote an article in the ABA journal titled The Billable Hour Must Die. And he was focused here on the transactional unit, which is the billable hour. And if you're a lawyer anyplace, what you're trying to do is make sure that your time on earth is spent uh, logging billable hours, which can then be charged to clients. And that, and that's, that kind of corrupts a whole bunch of different things in the system, right? And so um, if you were on retainer, if you were an employee of a company and their lawyer, therefore, you know, not on a billable hour, there's a whole lot of other ways that this could work. Um, but um, I think that part of our problem here is that uh, there was a New York Times article that I've put in my brain, and I'll explain my brain in just a second, uh, but the New York Times article about Turo's uh, article said the tyranny of the billable hour, the case against the law firm billable hour, uh, and how this all could work. Um, and, and then as a brief aside, I have this memory device, which is uh, a mind map that I've been curating for 23 years. Oh, believe fact, me, I was going to ask you about your oh, brain good. because I remember when you showed me your brain in person and anybody listening to this is like, no, Jerry didn't actually physically show me his brain, but yeah, it's been since 1997 approximately, correct? Exactly. Uh, so this, the, this little company, this little startup, and I used to be in the business of listening to startup pitches. So I probably heard 4,000 of them in the, in the dozen years that I did that. One of those 4,000 companies had a mind mapping tool called the brain. And I remember booking the, the, the appointment going, yeah, right, the brain, whatever. And then I also remember the moment the inventor opened his laptop and started demoing this little mind map thinking, oh, hey, this is kind of how my, my brain works, the wet one inside my head. And so I started using it. And the file that I'm staring at right now where I found this article, The Billable Hour Must Die, is the same data file, the same mind map that I started 23 years ago. Um, and so in it, I've been, I've been sort of feeding um, anything worth remembering and then putting it, curating it, gardening it in context over time. And anybody can go visit my brain for free at jerrysbrain.com. Just click on launch Jerry's brain and you can go find the billable hour must die by using the little search bar, et cetera, et cetera. I can explain a lot more about it. And there's some videos on that website, but, but I'll add that using a mind map for 23 years has a improved my memory, but B taught me this incredible lesson that we are a stupider civilization because we don't have a shared memory that we are busy drowning in the information flood, whether it's legal briefs and changes in the law or the news of the day and you know what Scott Turow wrote or his latest novel, uh, whether it's that or anything else, but, but we, have, we lack a way to show each other what we think and why we think it, which makes us easier to spin, which makes us just dumber on the whole. We, we become even more docile consumers in a world where we have no shared memory. You know, you bring up something that's really important in the legal profession. So I've worked in legal technology for a long time. 
as well as legal marketing and other aspects of the law. And one of the things that even in Silicon Valley, there's been so much pushback against legal technology is because part of what legal technology does is that sharing that you've just talked about. So if you imagine something, for example, for closing deals, mergers and acquisitions, mm -hmm. which can be a really complicated thing. So technology comes out, which allow you to, you know, share the entire process, including deal books. And there's so much pushback in the beginning, in the beginning, I say like, you know, 2010 to 2014 about this, because, you know, so many lawyers felt that everything they were doing was proprietary and even sharing things within their own firm, you know, heaven forbid, and this even was said in San Francisco, heaven forbid something should be shared in the cloud, right? Because everything has to be shared, you know, absolutely saved locally. So there's just a lot of elements of, of trust in the legal profession. And some of that is, is regards trust with and around technology too. Mm -hmm. And I'm, <clears throat> I'll say this, I'm, I'm married to a lawyer, um, but I'll say that had I had a law degree when the brain rolled by and showed me their wares, I very likely would not have A, used it for 23 years and B, published it openly to the cloud, right? So. So there's lots of incentives to not share what you know, if it's going to be held against you or if, you know, any number of things. I'll layer on to that, that one of my beliefs is that we are busy overprotecting intellectual property in this world. That, uh, you know, uh, Jack Valenti's famous phrase that, you know, how long should copyright be? And he said, well, uh, forever minus a day, right? right? That's kind of what a lot of people who hire lawyers would love to have. And I think that that would be a crime against humanity because, because information belongs more, more in the commons than in private hands. And so uh, behind this is also this notion that there could be some kind of new commons and information commons where it's, it builds up as you share it rather than being diminished as you use it up. So in, in physical commons, you have this problem where if I put too many sheep on the commons and they graze the grass down, then the next farmer, the next shepherd can't you know, feed the sheep. Uh, this is not a problem with information commons. Uh, and then again, here back to Wikipedia, I'll tell a, a quick story where um, Jimmy Wales, the inventor of Wikipedia was, was giving a talk and I was sitting in front of him. This is a long time ago before Wikipedia got really big. Uh, in fact, I can tell you when it was because it was a week after uh, Pope uh, Benedict XIII was named Pope. Ah. And he said, you know, the day after uh, the Pope is named, I get all these congratulatory emails from, uh, from the press saying, we're really, you know, it's so fabulous. What a deep page Wikipedia had immediately about the new Pope. How'd you do that? And Jimmy just laughs and he says, well, well, look, we had a very deep page on every one of the bishops who was up for, you know, possibly becoming Pope. And as soon as the white smoke happens, uh, somebody goes in, edits the first paragraph of the page, changes the name of the page. He's taken the name Benedict, shabing, shaboom. And, but the insight from that is, if you're actually paying attention to the world and curating things all along, then you don't have to start de novo with every question that shows up and everything that's happening. You can actually build an asset together that includes, if you do this right, what we thought the facts were at every point in time. 
So, you know, there's Wikidata, there's other kinds of projects that try to do this, that try to pour data into the commons so that when we do an analysis of how many deaths were there from COVID, for example, that we're working from similar numbers and that we can say, oh, this country and this country are using different methodologies to assess, you know, and you can kind of dive deeper into the particular, the particulars of the issues, but at least they're available to talk about. So, so we're overprotecting intellectual property. We've forgotten even notions of what the commons are. And I think a lot of what I'm saying will, will sort of grab lawyers by the throat or other nether parts um, and they'll tighten up because this runs counter to a lot of what employs lawyers. But the interesting thing about that, Jerry, and I agree totally, the interesting thing is like you have seen tons of startup pitches over the years, and I've seen a fair amount over the past five or six years from law students who come to law school with a background in technology, an interest in law, and probably an interest in becoming lawyers, but not necessarily. And they want to be quote unquote legal innovators, whatever that means. So, you know, given all of your experience, what non legal advice would you give somebody in law school? about to start their career. Now I could phrase it in a way to say, to give them a competitive or comparative advantage, but I won't say that. I'm looking for really great life advice for these people who've decided to make a huge investment, financial and otherwise, in going into law school and are setting off on a career where they're either going to do, I think they're gonna do one of two things. They're either going to further ingrain the status quo of the legal profession, or they're going to try to become change makers. So what would you tell them if you were sitting in a room with them in Portland or San Francisco or, or where our office is in Philadelphia? Or wherever. Ah, I lived in West Philly for a couple of years for grad school. <clears throat> um, so I have a bunch of thoughts in my brain. Every node in my brain is called a thought. And I have a, a lot of, of them involve rethinking something. So one of them is rethinking our legal system. Another one is rethinking law enforcement and punishment. These are all, of course, related. Um, and so there's, there's resources in here that are probably more specific than I, what I can recall offhand. But what I'll say is I'll go back to this notion of design from trust and the idea that um, if you assume good intent, but not naively, um, and there's a slide that I, that I use all the time when I explain this point, I, I, I put up a slide of uh, Michael Hasselhoff and I say, everybody knows there's bad actors. And, and that always gets a chuckle because of Hasselhoff. Um, but how you deal with bad actors is all the difference here. And in systems that are designed from trust, you try to design dealing with bad actors into the system late. You try to turn as many bad actors into good actors as you possibly can. And then you resort to other means only when you have to. In systems that are designed for mistrust, you turn, you pretend everybody is a potential bad actor, and then you design a system that removes their sense of agency, removes what they're able to, to do, it removes their wiggle room uh, to do or negotiate or think aloud uh, to, in order to create some kind of stability for the system as a whole on, on, at the large scale. But what you do is you kind of break everybody's participatory joy and their ability to form connections and so forth. Now, how do you apply that to legal encounters? And quite possibly, how do you apply that to, um, to, to encounters before they become legal encounters? And here, um, I'll throw another sort of uh, hot potato in the conversation, which is this, this cry to defund the police that came up through the Black Lives Matter protests and all that. And 
it's terrible, terrible branding. I think defund the police is awful branding, but a part of what they're trying to do is to rethink policing. And what's happened is as we shut down, as we did deinstitutionalization in the 70s and uh, the war on drugs and a whole bunch of other things, things showed up on the police and emergency room doorsteps that were never their business to start with. And they both got overloaded with social ills that our systems were actually exacerbating instead of fixing. So if I were a young lawyer, I'd go back in to try to figure out at the policy level, at the structural level, and at these sort of local levels of how we deal with conflict, how to stop things from going into the legal system. So I would, I would try to figure out how to break the funnel um, so that fewer and fewer things are actually falling into the legal system. Um, and then I'll throw in a slightly random thought, which is um, one, of my, one of the real downheartening, disheartening uh, aspects of the Trump administration for me has been that Trump has made it his sort of strategy to break norms all the time. And the reason he didn't have to publish his taxes and we still don't actually have his returns um, is that there was a norm that you did that. There wasn't a law that you had to. And it makes me very deeply sad that at this point, I think we need to pass a couple of laws to enforce a couple of things to prevent those sorts of situations from happening in the future. But, but I think we, we make laws, we pass regulations when discourse fails. So I would, as a young lawyer, go learn better about what discourse is like and how things work. And um, my passion project right now is a thing called Open Global Mind. So if you go to openglobalmind.com, you can see a couple of videos explaining it. You can join the conversation by clicking on a link there. I'll add you to our mailing list, which is a conversational list, not a marketing list. But I'm trying to figure out how do we help humans make better decisions together? And this is motivated not only by 23 years of using this mind mapping tool called the brain, that's, that's a prime motiv motivator here, but also from attending way too many conferences where good ideas sort of ended up on the cutting room floor, from watching the, the cultural divide being stoked and widened intentionally in our political realm and seeing, you know, having my own narrative for how that happened and how we might get undo uh, and come back into treating one another as citizens, not as consumers, and finding our way back toward a civic life that engages people instead of the consumerization of civic participation, which is now just, you know, we need a lot of your money to run ads so that you'll vote for, for one party instead of the other. So all of this stuff is kind of tied together. And from my own perspective, the whole world needs to be redesigned from trust. So why not tackle not just the legal system, but all the feeder systems to the legal system, which themselves involve regulations, legislations, uh, policy, uh, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's, there's just so, there's an endless feeder system uh, that winds up in the courts. I'm curious as to what you think the relationship might be between trust and failure. And in my opinion, lawyers are really not good at failure. But as you know, Jerry, having spent so much time in San Francisco in the Valley, failure has become such a Silicon Valley meme. So how do you think that skilled professionals such as lawyers can get better at failing? That is a deep question. And then failure rings so many bells for me because um, part of what the law I think tries to do or lawyers try to do is to prevent failure modes. They try to predict and then prevent 
failure modes if they possibly can. And if not, they're trying to figure out how to deal with failure modes and you know who gets what, uh, what's the remedy, how does this all work? <clears throat> um, but I think that failing and learning from failure is a crucial social process that we should lean into. We should try to figure out how that works and works better. And one of the weird and positive things out of Silicon Valley, which doesn't transport well into other cultures or slowly has now, but it took a very long time, was the idea that an entrepreneur could fail once, twice, three times, and still somebody would give them money for trying a fourth time. That, that other countries are like, seriously? You gotta be kidding me. So, so that's kind of a, a, an interesting and positive advent from, from Silicon Valley that could be carried into other sorts of areas. And, and then I have to fold in what, what I mentioned a little earlier, which is, but we're in this sort of very vigilantist society right now where failure is stamped out, where if, you know, the answer is fire them, evict them, uh, send them out someplace else, like make sure they never, never have another working day again. And that's not actually how you run a healthy society. Um, so, and, and I don't know enough about the legal system's inner workings to suggest how failure might be treated differently inside the system. And believe me, um, I'm not suggesting that lawyers, you know, who run a transactional practice should switch their legal marketing and advertising to telling clients, come, I will fail for you. Exactly. What I'm thinking, probably not the best way to run a business, folks, for our listeners. But what I'm thinking is, how does a lawyer and how does the profession better embrace failure and learn from it to, you know, I don't want to say become more failure proof, because the point is, like you said, an entrepreneur, the number of entrepreneurs who failed once and succeeded are very close to zero. Mm -hmm. The number of entrepreneurs that have failed in the dozens of times and not more, which is why you see more and more studies coming out saying that the while you know, entrepreneurs who are 20 years old are still getting all the attention. It's entrepreneurs in their 50s who have the greatest chance of success because they have found a way to embrace and learn from failure. And I always think about, you know, practitioners coming into the legal industry who don't really have that many stories to share and they haven't been practicing law and they're expected to perform. And then I think about them in relation to lawyers who've been practicing for 20 or 30 years and how do they become the best lawyer that they can for their client. And as you said before, sometimes being the best lawyer for your client is that you're not taking the client. Maybe they actually don't need a lawyer. Maybe there's another way to resolve an issue. It's very complex stuff, I think. Totally agree. I'm, I'm looking at a thought in my brain called learning from failure, which has a lot of things under it, uh, including a, a, a website called Philosophy, uh, and another, another um, thing called Fuck Up Nights, which is basically when uh, entrepreneurs share their stories from failure. It's a, it's a, it's a conference that got set up some years ago. Um, and I think one of the ways this could work is to soften up the failure modes in contracts and in sort of in legal exchanges, uh, because very often failure is punished very severely, whether it's financially or, or in other means. Um, and so how do you make it so that, so that failure modes are softer? How do you make it so that, um, contracts are simpler and regulations are simpler. 
Um, Netflix has a very famous uh, policy around their HR, around things like expenses and vacation days and all that. Instead of having a big tome that tells you exactly what you can and can't do and what's acceptable or not, their policy is, you know, do what's in Netflix's best interests. That, that's the policy. And clearly there will be exception cases, and, but, but that leads to conversations, right? And it's also a gesture of trust toward the employees of Netflix, which is really interesting which one would hope would open the door for those employees to be asking a lot of questions. Hey, is this legit? Is this not legit? How does this work? And if that trust is fostered and continues, because these things also break inside of cultures over time, then this becomes a really sort of low maintenance, high impact, uh, high fidelity system over time that it in fact builds the culture. So how do you then take that kind of approach and work it down into other aspects of the law and the practice. Um, and I think it's a, it's a lovely deep question. You've mentioned the word culture, the word culture so many times in the conversation and it's so important. And when you were talking about, you know, the current president for the next couple of weeks and uh, the law, something that I've written about and something that I've read so much over the past few months is are so many pieces about the US constitution and even bringing up you know, amendments to the Constitution that we haven't written about or read about in years. But as you said, you know, it's a real deep dive into the Constitution today <laughs> to see what, you know, laws may or may not have been broken. And to go from that place where we are today to a society and a legal system and even transactional law that's based more on trust um, are you super hopeful? Is this going to happen, do you think, in four years, eight years? Like, what's our time frame for that? Should we be setting our, uh, our video cassette recorders back in time? That's great. I love that. Um, so it's funny because I have way too many opinions about change. But one of those opinions is that sometimes, every now and then, change happens much faster than you thought it would. And things go from one state of being into a different state of being. Um, over a, the course of a year or a few months. And then you look back and go, wait, wait, wait. It was just last March when we were thinking this way and suddenly we're thinking very differently. Um, also, sometimes you can kind of hack the system. And here um, I'm remembering a story of how uh, a woman named Molly, something I've got to look her up in my brain, but uh, she basically tackled uh, female genital mutilation in West Africa. And she did it by reading the Quran. And she went into the Quran and realized that nowhere in the Quran is FGM prescribed or anything like that. And she went to the imams of villages and said, hey, um, by the way, this isn't actually in the Quran. Is there a way we could work differently? And once the imams were on board, village after village after village stopped the practice, which is a cultural practice, right? And culture culture eats strategy for breakfast, as uh, Peter Drucker is, is possibly not the person who said that, but is noted to have said. Um, and so culture is hugely important to pay attention to here. Um, and I think that the law can be treated in very similar ways. I love when you say, is there a way we can work differently? I think this may be a a wonderful final note for us to leave our, our audience, because I think that every lawyer should be asking that. Is there a way we can work differently? And no way is that to suggest that a lot of what lawyers do 
you know, isn't done for a good reason, whether it's a reason dictated by the system, dictated by the, you know, parameters of their practice or whatever. But is there a way that we can work differently? When you say something like that, I actually looked at an ad this morning. There was something on Twitter that said this was an ad that Apple did before Steve Jobs came back into control of the company. And this was an ad that Apple did when he was back. And of course, the first ad was, had lots of text and was comparing all the different features of the computer. And then the second ad when Steve Jobs was back was just an image of a computer and just saying like, this is fantastic. And it's a different way, it's a different imagination of the product. And I think that by our audience listening to more people like you who aren't talking about traditional things that lawyer listen, lawyers listen to, maybe there's a way that they can help the system and themselves work differently. Um, totally agree. And I will add a note of sympathy for lawyers because you're in a craft that requires you to adhere to the letter of the law as closely as possible at the moment and to not give that a lot of wiggle room. And so explorations about how to rethink the, the, the domain that you live in are harder to do. It's, it's I think, harder to give your, even yourself permission to go into, this, into these spaces. Um, but I think it's, it's deeply important because the law affects so many different things and so many of the larger problems in our society are very clearly anchored in uh, bad regulations, bad decisions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then back to what you, the example we just gave about Steve Jobs ads, remember also the early iPod ads, which were just profiles of figures dancing. Those were great. Right? They were phenomenal. They were like, oh, I get it. Uh, you know, you've been unburdened, you've been freed from all this. So, um, so thank you for convening these, the, these conversations in this podcast. I think these are uh, really important topics and I appreciate your uh, having me on as a guest. Thank you for joining me, Jerry, and have a great rest of the day, everybody. We hope you enjoyed the first episode of the nextlevel.com legal podcast, and we look forward to seeing you again in the future. Thanks very much. Bye. Thank you.